0: Well, currently I'm on my fourth and final, probably final, um, child to teach to drive. And some of you parents, grandparents, you've been there, done that, and it's easy to forget about some of the challenges that come your way when you're teaching someone to gr- drive, because we take so much for granted that we do every time we jump behind the wheel and cruise to, to a Walmart or something. We forget about all the things that we had to learn in that process. And so when you have a 15-year-old driver one of the things I notice is they have a very tough time judging distance. Some of you parents know what I'm talking about, like how far a car is away from you at a turn. And so you're sitting there and you're waiting, and you're like, "Okay, you can really go," and you don't know whether to tell them or let them learn for themselves when the car's a long way away. Of course, you're telling them if the car's close to you. What to do at a traffic light? I mean, I know some of you guys. I'm behind you. Those blinking yellow lights. You're still trying to figure that out. The turn light, you know. Um, And and so they're like, what's this about, you know, staying in your lane in a busy intersection? That's tough to know what to do. So there's all these things that we just take for granted that we have to be taught along the way when it comes to driving. But we don't think about the fact that we need to be taught how to worship God, how to worship God. And the Psalms are an amazing book to teach us how to worship. Now, I know some of us love doctrine. We love the big truths of Scripture, and we love to read books on systematic theology. Well, in the Psalms, you get a lot more than just theology. You get emotion. You get worship of God that's expressed in so many different ways. And and so, as a believer, we know we're not guided by our emotions, but neither are we simply guided by our brain, our logic. We need our emotions, we need our brains, we need the head, heart, and hands as we say every single week. And so in the Psalms, we get a bigger view of God. And when we lose sight of God, we try to control our world so that it fits us and makes us do things the way that we want them to be done and have life accommodate us. But when we see God correctly, then we defer to his leadership his sovereignty, and his power. So we're in Psalm chapter 3 today. And Psalm chapter 3 is an amazing psalm which David talks about his own struggles, which comes from real-life experiences that he has dealt with. And we'll talk about that in a second. So let's read the chapter. Verse 1, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Let's pray and we'll look at the psalm. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that gives us truth and life. And it's so easy to get caught up in just the day-to-day routines and activities that we forget about you. And Father God, I pray that This morning through Psalm chapter 3, penned so long ago by King David, that we'll remember what life is all about. And a hundred years from now, when every single one of us is dead and gone, that we'll be rejoicing around your throne because we made the decision to accept your love and to follow you versus living life for ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Psalm 3 is one of only a handful of Psalms where we know specifically the historical situation that was going on. In fact, if you look at your heading, if you have your Bible open, you'll see that there is a an inscription there that talks about this is King David while he's running from his own son, Absalom, who's trying to kill him. And this is a great story. In fact, the entire account can be found in 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 19, and we won't read that today, but If you trace back the life of David, you can see that the root of so many of his dysfunctional issues in his family and so many of the issues that he dealt with stem from his sin with Bathsheba and the adultery that he had with her and then the subsequent cover-up of her husband by murdering him. And so David set into motion a series of devastating conflicts and severe dysfunction in in his life. And so what you'll see from this account is the same thing. All this ultimately stems from that. And so maybe we can think about our own life and when we've just self-inflicted damage upon ourselves through terrible decisions, bad choices, uh, just awful things that we do. And we know it's so hard to dig our way out of that. Well, David's was beyond anything we can imagine because his own son Absalom had murdered his brother And then he had fled into exile for several years. Ultimately, David allowed him back into Jerusalem, but he refused to see him for over two years. And so during this time, Absalom, his son, was building up all this resentment and bitterness toward David. And during this process, he began to undermine King David's leadership and began to be disgruntled and stir discord up among people within the kingdom of Israel And he would literally catch people as they were going to the palace to complain about things. And he would hear their problems before they got to the palace. Being the stature that he was, the king's son, apparently they began to trust him. And in 2 Samuel 15, verse 6, it says that Absalom won the hearts of all the people of Israel. That he won the hearts of the people of Israel. And so this conspiracy continued to increase to the point where David was for, in fear of his own life and had to flee out of Jerusalem with some of his servants, and they went into the wilderness. And David was probably approximately about 60 years old at this time. But as was read in the verse by Mr. Charles, that what we sow, we reap. That's always true. What we sow, we reap. And you sow to the flesh, you, we, you reap corruption, Paul says. We sp- sow to the Spirit, we reap eternal life. And so the good thing that we see from David today is the fact that grace is available to God's children regardless of what you've done and the bad decisions you made, but know that the consequences to your decisions are still going to play out ultimately. They will. They always do. And so I think that's why it's important as as parents to talk to our children about the real-life struggles and the things that happen in life that you sow this to yourself. Eventually, it's going to come back to you. And you can get things back together in God's grace again in your life, but, but you still are going to have so many things in your life that you wouldn't have to deal with otherwise had you not followed God's plan in the first place. And so today is not about beating you up if you've made those decisions. We all have. We're all reaping those things. But it's an encouragement, I guess, to parents to, let's say, you don't make the same mistake that I made here, all right? Don't do what I did here. Let me teach you the lesson that I learned and I'm still learning and so we see David is in this situation and so much of it is from his own making but what does he do look at verse 1 he sees the obvious okay he's not scripture never denies reality ever David looks around and he says many are my foes and they literally are many many are rising up against me so from a human standpoint Things physically, literally don't look good for David. And these many foes means they're multiplying. More people are going on the absence side and more people are abandoning, abandoning David. And he says these same people on verse 2, many are saying, David says, of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. They're saying that of his soul. What does that mean? They're saying that they're really trying to hit him at the deepest possible level. They're getting to the point where these are very, very personal insults to say he's beyond God. He's beyond God's grace. God's not going to save him. He is ruined at the very core. And so they're saying these things about David. And and it's just it's going to go from worse to worse to worse for his life. In fact, if you read the account in 2 Samuel as he's running out of Jerusalem and fleeing, it's interesting, like this one guy comes out of the house... And he's part of Saul, the first king, who David became king after Saul. You remember this. And he didn't, David didn't do everything right the way that God wanted in that process as well. This guy from Saul's household comes out, begins to curse and scream at David, and literally begins to pick up rocks and throw at David, all right? And not only does he throw rocks at David and his party, he begins to follow along on the hillside adjacent to them, pelting them down with rocks. I mean, and, and so it's crazy what David is facing here. And David was facing literal rocks, literal stones, probably not happening to in your life, but you do feel that, right? You, you, like metaphorically, like you know that when things are, are bad in your life, it seems like it just keeps piling on and more people are attacking and, and, and coming at you. And it's just like, will this ever end? And then you look back and you think, well, you know, it was a lot of self-inflicted damage that I did to myself. And so David doesn't deny reality he sees this rejection and it's overwhelming he's rejected at the soul level at the deepest level his core but David doesn't allow his situation get this he doesn't allow his situation to control his mind look what David thinks in his mind to himself in verse three instead of saying woe is me poor pitiful me he says but you O lord are a shield about me You're my glory and the lifter of my head. He begins to talk to God with his problems. But you, oh Lord. He's talking to God, but you, oh Lord. And so Satan always wants to target our minds. And I think this is something that is not said much about in churches. About the attack that Satan does upon our minds. Because everything starts there, right? Those seeds of bitterness against that person... Start in your mind. You begin to think about them, to fantasize about them, to think, well, if I could do this or could do that or get even with them that way. And we begin to play this out in our minds. And Satan tempts us to think and feel in ways that are contrary to what he says. And we begin to allow that to take root into our mind. And so your mind really matters. What you choose to think about, where you put your mind at, matters and Satan wins a substantial victory in your life every time you allow your mind to leave the truth of God and to run after your own way of trying to handle things. So David brings his mind under control and he says, God, this is who I know you to be. You're my shield. You're my protective barrier. And he acknowledges God's sovereignty and God's power, even in the situation, which from a human standpoint looks very bleak. And then I love the next one, he says, you are my glory. And I think this really ties back into the fact that these people were saying these things about his soul. I mean, they were making it up personal. They were trying to get in there deep on him. And he says, God, you're my glory. My glory is not in myself, my glory is in you. You're my glory. And so when we see God is our worth and God is our value, then these things don't have the damage that they're intended to have. And we allow our minds to say, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to allow my mind to dwell there. But what happens when we begin to let those things take root in our life? When somebody begins to kill your status, when they say things about you in the community or write something about you on Facebook, if God is not your glory, you begin to let those things devastate you. Or if your health is so important to you and, and it should be. I mean, we should take care of ourselves. But when God allows crisis or trials or even self-inflicted damage that you've done to yourself to take root into your life, if that's your glory, your life is devastated. Your life is devastated. Or if, you're, if all your hope is in resources and money and, and what you're doing in life and your career, if all your hope is there, and then those things begin to be stripped away from you. Your glory, as in yourself, is revealed. It, it shows. If your glory is in God, you say, "Yes, I'm human. I'm tempted, like everyone, and I'm struggling. But I'm not going to allow this just to consume me. I'm going to turn it over to you, God. I'm going to talk to you, God." And David says, "God's the lifter of his head." You see, when David left Jerusalem with his band, with his band of people, he had his head down. He was literally barefoot. He was hopeless, and God is the lifter of his head. David was a human being just like us. He was discouraged, but you see that he's doing something about where he's at in his life. He's doing something about the suffering that he's dealing with and the humiliation, the rejection. God lifts his head. and So David turns his mind to God, even though his eyes, the physical, he sees things are not good. And and that's our challenge. We can see physically that things are rough and difficult. Marriage is is, is not going very well. The kids are not doing what they should be doing. They're not following God the way that I hoped they would. The job isn't working out. And we see these things happening. And we see these things going on in our life. And we can allow our minds to begin to just fall apart. But God says, Focus on the right things. Focus upon my truth. And that's what we learn from David and his worship. Don't allow these things to corrupt your thinking. And let me just say this. If you don't have the discipline, we talk about this all the time. Mitch talked about it again last week. If you don't have the discipline to be in God's word on a regular basis, in the good times when things are going well for you and everything's falling together the way it should, then when when things fall apart, and you run to the Word, it's not going to have the same effect on you as if you've been nurturing your relationship with God and reading His Word and being in His promises consistently every single day. You begin to develop these habits because God is showing Himself more and more to who He is. So how much mental airtime do you give to the things of God when things are great, when things are good? And so focusing upon God and allowing God to change your mindset before you get into that situation where your life is falling apart. I love this quote from R.C. Sproul. Actually, when I was doing sermon prep, Michelle sent this to me, unrelated to the sermon, but it fits so well. He says, Here then is the real problem of our negligence. We fail in our duty to study God's word, not so much because it is difficult to understand, not so much because it's dull and boring, but because it is work. Our problem is not a lack of intelligence or a lack of passion. Our problem is that we are lazy. So true. Because so many guys tell me, I just not you know, I don't like to read. And it's true. I mean, guys after college, the majority of guys never read another book from cover to cover, ever. All right. It just doesn't happen. They say that about men. Men don't do that. But we're lazy. We're lazy in school. We, we, we watch the video with the movie instead of reading the book, right? We get the cliff notes. Now you got Wikipedia. But you can't be lazy with the things they've got because why? The battle is so much bigger than whether you finish that book or not. What's at stake is so much bigger than whether I make an A in that class or not. This is life and death. This is eternal and if we don't remind ourselves of so that every day, we will fall into the pattern of the world's thinking, which is I'm getting from point A to point B. And in that process, I hope I have as much ease and comfort as possible. Don't cut me off. Don't get in my way. Don't be mean. Don't say anything negative. I just want my flow to be easy and calm. That's, we're all wired naturally that way. But God says not so fast. You don't grow to be like Jesus when things are easy and and the waters are calm. You grow to be like Christ in the difficulty. And so when those things happen, we need our relationship with God to be real and current. And we're knowing his promises, talking talking to him about our problems like we'll see in a second. So when life is falling apart and people are throwing rocks, where do we turn? Verse 4, look where David goes next. He says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Most of us do know that anxiety and worry and fear can, at times, consume our minds. And we become so fixated on it. And what's crazy is, in a strange twist of irony, that we try to control our situation by... Letting these things run in our minds. And in in actuality, our attempt to control it is leading to more and more lack of control in these areas. And so we just allow our minds just to go wherever they want to go. We say it this way a lot at Grace. We're just allowing ourselves just to say whatever we want. Instead of talking to ourselves, we're listening to ourselves. Just whatever's coming in, we're not grabbing it and controlling it. But look what David does he cries aloud to the Lord. He entrusts his feelings to God. Good comes about when we let go of what's troubling us in our mind and we begin to tell it to God God and talk to God about it. I mean, that's a very, very practical, biblical act of worship that you and I can do. We begin to say, God, I need you. I need you. And we need God because we realize That life isn't about us. It's about his kingdom. Everybody in here, even if this is your probably first time to church, you know the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done, not my will, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said, hey, this is the way to pray because this is the foundational piece of what it's all about. It's not about your life and what you want. It's about what I want, my kingdom, my glory, And so when we begin to see it's not about us and it's about him, then we're able to say, God, I'm entrusting this into your care. And David just voices it out loud. He just tells God, God, I'm struggling. What do I do? Look around. It doesn't look good. And so we do this, and strangely enough, things become much more manageable because God's listening, he's hearing, and we're getting that out there. And we're not dealing with it in here, but we're expressing it to him. And and that's what Scripture talks about, walking by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, Paul says this. He says, So we are always of good courage. Always. Why? We know that while we are at home in this body, we're away from the Lord. We're not seeing God face to face. So on this earth, we're walking by faith, not by sight. See, if David was walking by sight... He would be freaking out because the odds looked horrible for him. But he wasn't freaking out because he was walking by faith and not by sight. And so this idea of walk that Scripture uses, this is an important word, because it shows this reference to just the way we conduct our lives day in and day out. I'm just conducting my life. I'm walking with God. I'm just taking one step after another. And then verse 5 and 6, David continues. He says, I lay down and slept. All this, these foes, these enemies around him, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So again, David is not just one day in the comfort of his office with his large bookshelf on the side. He, he didn't just take his pen and, you know, I think I'll write something here about God and about life. I mean, he's in the thick of it. Literally thousands of people pursuing him and he's writing these words. This is not just some theological idea, some abstract idea that he has. This is real life and God is personal to him. And here's the thing. We can't have peace in those moments if we're not at peace with God just in general. We can't have peace in moments when we don't know God and know his peace. What am I talking about? We sang about it earlier in one of the songs that Christ is our righteousness. That's the gospel. The gospel is, I can't think about going to God and being in God's presence, talking to God, throwing my needs out to him if my righteousness isn't found in Jesus Christ. Why? Because there's nothing good in us, scripture says. Nothing at all good in us. How can we ever approach God in and of ourselves. And then we have people who come and try to corrupt the gospel, says, well, you got to do these things and then God will accept you. Well, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus did it for you. Jesus lived the perfect life. He died the perfect death. He rose again. And we have peace with God only through Jesus Christ. And that's our rescue. That's our hope. That's our salvation is in Christ and in Christ alone. Being at peace with God means that you're trusting in Jesus as your crucified and risen Savior and Lord because he made peace with God for you. And so David, he could lay down and sleep, even in the fact that it'd be easy to reminisce and look back and dwell on and think about all the mistakes that he had made through his life. But he said, I laid down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. The Lord sustained me. You know, if you lay your head on your pillow at night and all that consumes you is worry, stress, are we going to have enough? What about my kids? Are they going to make it? What's going to happen in the future? If that's what consumes our minds at night, there's no way that we're having anything like a good night's sleep. David could have a good night's sleep in spite of his situation And circumstances because what captivates our minds really reveals what's in our hearts. So practically, honestly, pillow, what's going through your mind? What are those anxieties? You know, anxieties are kind of like the warning lights on your car. You know, you get that warning. It's a good thing, right? Sometimes you need that warning to know I got to get some repairs done here. Anxiety can be a good thing. It warns you against danger and problems. But when we begin to fixate and dwell and and try to solve things in our own strength versus in God, we begin to just, again, listen to ourselves. Instead of talking to God and preaching the gospel to ourselves, nothing good ever comes out of that. And so David, he's in this, what we would say by sight, looking, he's in this mess. Many thousands of people are against him. Romans, Paul put it this way, though, if God is for us, who can be against us? And that's what David's saying here. Matthew, Jesus said it this way in Matthew ten 28, Don't fear those who can kill the body. And I think it's important, as Charles mentioned about offering, we don't give to get. And there's times, I mean, maybe you're thinking you're not really... In church, on a regular basis, you're not a believer, possibly. And you're thinking, well, I don't get it because I know many of people who said they were Christians. And then, like, bad things happen. They got cancer or this person died or they got divorced. And so you say you have this faith and it's going to fix all this stuff, but it doesn't work, does it? Well, look what Jesus says. He says, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. So Jesus makes it clear, yeah, sometimes life doesn't work out. Sometimes the rescue team doesn't show up to help you. Sometimes the situation keeps getting worse from a physical point of view. And here's a little news flash We're all going to die. I mean, I know that's not exciting news to hear, but it's true. So we need to fear the one who can kill the body and the soul. Not just those who can kill the body. And that's what David's getting at. And that's what Paul gets at when he says, if God's for us, who can be against us? My identity, my life is head with Christ in God. I can rest because I'm at peace with God. God is for you. Who can be against you? And so David says in in verse seven and eight, he prays this in his prayer. He says, arise, O Lord. He says, save me, oh my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek and break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. So David's picture here in a poetic way is of his enemies as these ravenous beasts bearing their teeth, ready to devour him. And so he says, God, I need you to break these people's teeth. I need you to put them in their place. Render them powerless. Over the years, reading the Psalms, you can't help if you spend any time in the Psalms, you know that sometimes, like it seems pretty rough, some of the things that are prayed at times about enemies, like God take this guy down, break his teeth, slap him on the cheek, devour him, destroy him. You are like, I don't get that. Why are why are we doing that? Why are we praying that way? Should we pray that way? And we see David frequently pray these type of prayers. A couple things to remember here: David was the king of Israel. Chosen by God for God's chosen people. And so when David was being threatened, God's very plan and purpose was being threatened. And God had set David up to be the ruler and the leader spiritually and physically to this nation. And so when we see in the New Testament, when do we see prayers that pray against enemies or cursing enemies? Here it is. When God's will is attempting to be thwarted, meaning his salvation, to save and rescue his people. When that's being threatened, Paul prayed, don't let those people destroy the gospel, threaten the gospel. And so what I see is when God's will is clearly, it's being attempted to, to subvert and, and to, to turn and detour people away from God's will, the gospel in our case, When the gospel is being threatened, then at times it's okay to pray prayers like this. If there's someone in a church who's spreading news that isn't the gospel, spreading truth, truth that isn't the gospel, then they need to be prayed against. There's times when we do want to pray against churches and influences that may be preaching a false gospel and leading people away from Jesus Christ. And so there's times for that, but as you read in Scripture in the New Testament, and Jesus said, pray for your enemies, turn the other cheek. So I believe the majority of the time, the vast majority, our job as gospel ambassadors is to pray for those who oppose us. Honestly think, from Scripture, those who we pray against are those who claim to know God, those who claim to know Jesus, but are preaching a false gospel. Paul was very clear, let those people be cursed. If me or an angel from heaven come and tell any other gospel to you, cursed be that person. And so when the gospel was threatened, we pray against that person. So we pray against our enemies when, we, when our prayers, when we, we pray for God's will to continue and, and flourish and go out. And so when the gospel is being threatened, we pray. And then he says, Salvation belongs to you, Lord, verse 8. Your blessing be on your people. He says, God, rescue your people. And as the king, salvation was coming through him. Salvation to his people. God had chosen him. And so he prays for Israel's redemption. And like Paul in Romans 10, 1, where Paul prayed for Israel, my heart's desire and prayer for God for them is that they may be saved. So he prays for salvation for his people. So let's talk about applying this passage. Our head. God is in control, even when it doesn't feel that way. Even when it doesn't feel like God's in control, and life is unraveling, terrible things are happening, we trust that God, in his sovereign grace, is doing something that we don't understand. And we take that, and we turn it over to him. We talk to him about it. And then our heart. This is important. Your anxieties tell you something about your heart. The things that you spend all your time worrying about and thinking about, dreaming about, pondering, those things tell you a lot about where your heart is at. You want to diagnose your heart, diagnose your mind. Where is it at? What's going on there? Follow that trail. It will lead you to your true idol, to the things that you truly want in life. And then your hands, talk to God, talk to yourself, especially at night on your pillow. Don't listen to yourself, don't let your mind just run unchecked. Put your hope and trust in the promises of God. Be walking with Him. You know His Word, you can battle Satan as He attempts to hijack your brain and to steal the affections of your heart. And you keep going back to his word. We walk with him. And out of that walk comes the ability to say, your kingdom come. Not my kingdom. My kingdom is dismal and terrible. Your kingdom come. Your will be done right here on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, it's sure not easy to live life by taking up our cross and following Jesus. Most of the time, we want a feel-good religion. We want a genie in the bottle. We want a God who meets our every wants and desires and needs. And in reality, the things that we name as needs and the things we put in in those, those columns of things that we have to have are really not important for the kingdom most of the time. And God, I pray that you will help us to get our priorities set on you and on your kingdom. And God, in those moments where life is unraveling and things are falling apart, God, give us that perspective as we run to you and talk to you. God, pray for those who just have a a serious battle with anxiety. We pray for our sisters and brothers in Christ who are, are struggling in such a real way in this, in this battle, and their minds are, feel like they're getting the better of them, and they're hurting, and they're in pain. God, I pray that you'll send others along to them in this church who are dealing with the same things to encourage, and those who have maybe had some victory over these areas in their life. God, send those people to help and encourage. And most importantly, God, help us to start talking to you and listen less to ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name.